Amen. We're going to read from Mark's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Mark chapter 13. And we're going to be reading from verses 14 through to 23. I will have the verses up on the screen if you've forgotten your Bibles. And we're going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but if you have a different translation, that's absolutely fine. So Mark 13, verse 14 to 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray as we come now that you would help me, uh, your servant, to communicate your word truthfully and honestly, not to get in the way of what you're saying, Father God, not to stand back or shrink back from truth, but to proclaim it and to stand upon your word as the only God-breathed revelation in this world. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. This passage of scripture is known worldwide as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. And it contains in it a prophetic word, a prophetic utterance given by Jesus about a particular tribulation, a time of great suffering, and also his coming in judgment at the end of the age. And this word, this prophetic word called the Olivet Discourse, which Jesus has given from the Mount of Olives, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Not that there's anything particularly olivey about what Jesus says, but it's where it was preached from, where he said it from, which was to the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And what Jesus says in this passage here, which we began covering a few weeks back and which we'll continue covering for another few weeks, what he said in this passage has both wowed theologians and commentators and has also bewildered many theologians and commentators for centuries. And I don't have time today to dive into every nook and cranny of this text, so I want to be upfront with you. I wish I could be comprehensive about this passage. I wish I could dive into every single nook and cranny of the revelation of Scripture here, but we'd be here all day, and I know you have lunches to go to and things to do. So 
I'm going to try and hit the main points of what I believe Jesus is saying here, but I'm asking you, please do go home. Please do go home and do study this for yourself. Read commentaries, watch videos. Um, it's very, very interesting stuff, and there is so much to learn. I was laughing this morning as I was preparing to come and preach and talking to Becca, and I said the first verse of the passage I have today to preach on is the, about the abomination of desolation. And I just thought, you know what? This is what you get when you're in a church that preaches verse by verse. You can't avoid these texts. You can't cherry pick. You have to go through it. And I've spent hours and hours and hours this week reading and watching videos and reading the text and praying and trying to discern what's going on in this text. And so I hope today that this is enlightening. I hope today this is encouraging that the Lord speaks to you through it because it's all his word, isn't it? It's not just John 3.16 that's the word of God. Uh, it, it's the whole Bible. And all of it is profitable for us, even if sometimes it's a little bit obscure, which this is. But in this passage here, the Olivet Discourse, why does it wow people? Why has it been such an incredible proof of Jesus' divinity? Well, it's wowed people because Jesus accurately prophesied the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which for the disciples and those who heard it at the time, and indeed those who first read the book of Mark that you're reading now, way back in the 50s AD, they would have been dumbfounded. They would have found that crazy because the temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And the stones that made up the temple, some of them were 60 foot in length. 60 foot in length, 11 feet high, 8 feet deep. You can't move that with a modern crane. So how are people going to throw those stones down, Jesus? It's incredible. And so this would have blown people's minds for Jesus to say, look at these stones, not one will remain upon another. It would have blown their minds. And Jesus accurately prophesies the destruction of the temple and the sack of Jerusalem well before it happened. Why has it bewildered many people? Well, it's confused and bewildered many because that's not the only thing Jesus prophesies. In this passage, he actually prophesies the coming in judgment, his own coming in judgment upon Jerusalem and it sounds very much like he's prophesying his own return at the end of time when you read this passage that is what this sounds like and in verse 30 Jesus doesn't just prophesy that he's coming back he doesn't just prophesy that he's going to come in judgment but he actually says to them this generation will not pass away until all these things take place I want you to feel the weight of this text and I want you to see now why it has been such a challenge for many Bible interpreters and I want you to feel personally the challenge of this as a Christian. Because critics of Christianity throughout the ages, they've pointed to this very chapter as their reason for not believing in Jesus. Bertrand Russell was a, an atheist philosopher who said, the reason I'm not a Christian is that Jesus got it wrong. Jesus was mistaken. He said he was coming back 
and that that generation would see his return and he didn't. Therefore, I can't be a Christian. And so I want for us to feel the weight of this. I think sometimes many of us can be a little bit slapdash with the scriptures and maybe we can pretend like the book of scripture is like dot-to-dot coloring, that it's all easy to understand, it's all simple, you know, and we, you know, we can explain everything. But some parts of scripture are hard, aren't they? Some bits of the Bible aren't always that easy to understand. And we, we need to pray. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten our understanding. We need to do work sometimes to understand what's being said. And this is one of these passages. I think this is maybe the hardest passage in the whole of the New Testament to really understand. And I think that because of those difficulties in understanding this text... Some theologians and some pastors over the years haven't really done due diligence in their interpretation. They haven't been careful. They haven't applied the same rules of interpretation that they would elsewhere. And so I think we also need to be careful. For example, one thing that pastors have done is that they have taken that word generation where Jesus says, you know, this generation will not pass away Some commentators take that word generation and they say, well, it doesn't mean 40 years. It doesn't mean like, you know, we'd say my generation or the who sang my generation. They meant their generation, those growing up with them in those times. And they say, well, no, that's not what Jesus means here. He's not talking about a particular demographic group of people who are alive at the same time. No, he's talking about a particular type of person. Or he's talking about... um, that generation at the end time that will be alive. But the problem with that kind of an understanding, guys, is that Jesus actually uses this same word, generation, a number of times in the New Testament. And every other time Jesus uses this word generation, he's talking specifically about those who were alive with him, living there in the first century. And so it seems to me that when he uses that phrase, genea, that word genea in the Greek, generation, we can't expect that he'd be meaning anything else other than those who are alive with me in this generation. You will see all these things come to pass. I'm not saying it's impossible that he meant something else, but it would be very improbable. That's what I'm saying. So we have to be careful and we have to be accurate with our interpretation of this passage so that we can help other Christians understand it and so we can actually help people who object to the Bible to understand it. So I think if we want to make sense of what's going on in the Olivet Discourse and what Jesus is saying here, we've got to have, first of all, first century lenses on. We have to be thinking in terms of the first century. Now I do believe that this prophecy does have an ultimate end time fulfillment as well. But I think Jesus is correct when he said all these things will be fulfilled. This generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. I think Jesus was right when he said that. And I don't think, as many commentators, when I listen to sermons about this passage of Scripture... I listen to a lot of sermons about the Great Tribulation. 
I read a lot of sermons about the end time, the rise of the end time antichrist. I read a lot of sermons about the rapture of the church uh, before the tribulation. But I don't see any of those things in what Jesus is saying. That's my issue. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't think Jesus would have spent the time to tell his four apostles on the Mount of Olives. He'd tell them all these things and none of them were going to actually happen to them. I feel that would be misleading. I feel that there was a definite application for them then. And we're going to look into how they actually applied what Jesus said in a moment. A key phrase that we see all the way through this passage is those days. Those days. Jesus is talking about days of tribulation, days of trial, days of persecution. He's talking about his coming in judgment and he's talking about the destruction of the temple. And we think back earlier on, two weeks ago, when I shared on this passage the last time, if you remember, Jesus gave the apostles a list of things that was going to happen. Things that were going to happen before his coming in judgment. If you remember, he said, listen, there'll be wars. There'll be rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes. There'll be famines. But he said to them, remember, don't be alarmed with those signs, for those are not the signs of the end, but simply signs of the birth pains. And as we talked about, many YouTube end times prophets these days spend their whole time looking for those signs as a sign of the end, but Jesus said these are just the birth pains. Okay? But in this passage, Jesus gives them a sign that will be a sign of the end. A sign that his judgment has come. That he is coming on the clouds in judgment. And that all the things he has prophesied are about to come to pass. And this is the sign. The abomination of desolation. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the sign. All these things are going to come to pass. Flee to the mountains. Don't go back into your house. Don't go and find your cloak. Get out, flee, run. <coughs> Excuse me. Mark also adds the words, let the reader understand. I don't think this is a very easy thing to understand, but we have to try. In Matthew's gospel, the abomination of desolation, Mark, Matthew says, is the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And that phrase does appear in the book of Daniel. If you were here last year, or I think it was maybe even the year before, we went through the book of Daniel. And that passage, that phrase, sorry, abomination of desolation, appears three times in that book. In Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12. <clears throat> and in Daniel 11, that abomination of desolation actually is speaking about a king who's already lived, a king from history. I don't know if you realize this, but Daniel chapter 11, there is a fulfillment thank you, of that prophecy. There was a king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Bit of a history lesson again. Antiochus Epiphanes is prophesied of in Daniel chapter 11, and he was a king from the north, 
who came and sacked Jerusalem in AD, sorry, in 168 BC. So this is before Jesus' time. He came and he sacked Jerusalem and slaughtered many Jews and then set up an altar to Zeus in the temple of God. An abomination of desolation. He set up an altar to Zeus and he sacrificed a pig on the altar and commanded the Jews to worship there, to worship Zeus. So what we're talking about here, what Jesus is talking about with the abomination of desolation is not some random thing. He's talking about the same kind of thing that Antiochus did, which was to set up an idolatrous place of worship in the household of God. God takes idolatry very seriously, brothers and sisters. He takes idolatry very seriously. And that term, abomination, is a very serious term. And it's always, well nearly always in the Old Testament, linked to the practice of idolatry, which is to take something else and worship it instead of God. And when we read abomination of desolation, in the book of Daniel, it's not abomination of desolation. The phrase is the abomination that brings desolation. The abomination that brings desolation. So it's, it's that, that act of godless pagan worship in the household of God. It's that act that actually brings desolation, that brings barrenness that brings dereliction. I want for you to make a connection here because I think very often we come to the subject of idolatry and idol worship and we remember the Old Testament texts about do not make a graven image, you know, don't worship something carved out of wood or made out of stone and we think, well, we don't really have a problem with that in our day and age. I actually think there's a growing problem of idolatry in our day and age. And there are many more people now than there were 10 years ago that really do worship carved idols. I, I know people that worship crystals. I think we all see that. There are many more people practicing actual idol worship than ever before. Maybe not in this country, but around the world. And in this country, maybe we don't make idols out of wood. Maybe you've never carved an idol out of stone and worshipped it and bowed down. But have you ever taken something other than God and made it the source of your life? Have you ever taken something that God created and built your whole life around it? Whether it's a loved one or family or whether it's something else like money. People can worship money. You can make an idol out of finance, can't you? All you need to do is make that the most important thing in your life. The thing that gets your attention above all else. For others, it, it, I think the biggest idol in the world today is self. That I put myself on the altar. I say, I am the one who I will worship. I will worship my own needs. I will follow my heart. I think it's the most idolatrous statement in the world today, follow your heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. And if we simply live to follow the desires of our hearts, 
then brothers and sisters, it's not God you're worshipping, it's yourself. And the Bible says that that kind of worship, the constant filling of your own desires, the meeting of your endless needs, the craven search for happiness in this world, is a form of false worship. It's a form of idolatry. And the Bible tells us that idolatry brings not joy, not fulfillment, not happiness, but desolation, destruction. I meet with many people, they say, I, I'm, I'm just in a wilderness season. You know, I'm struggling to pray, I'm struggling to read my Bible, really having a hard time hearing from God. And I say, great, come to church on Sunday. Oh, I can't, I'm going to the football. Okay, come the week after. Oh, I, I can't, I'm going somewhere else. We, we're going out for a meal. Okay, maybe come the week after. Oh, I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm doing something else. And very soon it becomes apparent that there is something more important in their life than God. There is something that they're putting a pinch of incense on instead of the Lord's altar. I can't always say what that thing is, but there's something preventing them from coming into the household of God and giving him his due. And I would say there's a direct connection, a direct correlation between that behavior and your sense of being in the wilderness. The Bible says that form of idolatry literally brings ice. It brings desolation. It brings, the, literally that word in Greek for desolation comes from the Greek word eremos, which is the word for wilderness. So if you're in a wilderness season, then the first thing you need to do is to look in your heart. Take a good look. Ask Holy Spirit to help you and say, am I putting something else before God? Is there something that I am giving my worship to before him? Is there something that's getting in the way of my following of Jesus today? And I think that will help. I think that will help you get back on track. Idolatry causes desolation. The very first two commandments in the Ten Commandments are about idolatry, aren't they? And I think that's very confusing for people in the world. Because we all expect, or at least non-Christians expect, the first commandment to be something like, thou shall not kill. But it's not, is it? Thou shall what? Thou shall have no other gods before me. God is very serious about his own worship. So idolatry is what brings desolation. An antichrist worship, because I think when the disciples hear Jesus saying these words, watch out for the abomination of desolation, they would have had in their minds what happened in 168 BC with Antiochus Epiphanes. They would have had that in mind. And what Antiochus did in setting up that altar to Zeus in God's holy temple and sacrificing that pig, that for us is a sign of what Antichrist worship is all about. Because I see in the Bible these prophecies, they often have an immediate fulfillment, don't they? And then they'll have a more distant fulfillment. But Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist. But he's a type of Antichrist. And what he did there in the temple is a type of worship that will be performed in the very last days when there is the rise of an individual called Antichrist. What the future Antichrist will do will be in keeping with what 
Antiochus did. And I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible also talks about a particular thing called an antichrist spirit in the book of First John. It says many antichrists have gone out into the world, not just one, but many. There is also an antichrist spirit, which is at work in the world even now. Not to freak you out too much, but how do we identify the antichrist spirit in the world? Well, I think we look no further than this kind of worship, the abomination of desolation. If we look at what Antiochus Epiphanes did in setting up an altar to a false god, but in the temple of God, and offering unclean worship, that's what the Antichrist spirit will look like. Antichrist worship always features a profaning of true worship, an inversion of true worship. So what we're seeing right now in the world, a twisting of worship, the offering of unclean things as if they were clean, the celebration of sin and debauchery as if it were holy in the household of God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. It's a spirit which, it's not okay to just tolerate this, but we're commanded to celebrate it. That's what's happening in the household of God in this day and age, and that is exactly Antichrist worship. Jesus says to them, when you see this sign, flee to the mountains. Flee. As I said before, I'll say it again, there's a great book by Josephus called The Fall of Jerusalem that I would encourage you to get hold of. Very small book, incredible read. And in that book, there's a quote that I find very interesting because Josephus was an eyewitness to the fall of Jerusalem. He saw it happen. He was a Jew himself, but he, he was a warrior actually and he'd been taken captive by the Roman army and then he was used by the Roman army to try and reason with the Jews in Jerusalem. And he records for us a particular event that took place in AD 70 inside Jerusalem. He says this, as the partisans, that is the Jewish soldiers, fled into the city, the flames were consuming the sanctuary itself and all its surroundings. The Romans brought their standards into the temple area and erecting them opposite the east gate, remember that's the gate that Jesus is facing when he's saying all this in Mark chapter 13, they erected their standards opposite the east gate and sacrificed to them there. And with thunderous acclamation, hailed Titus, their general, as imperator. That sounds to me very much like an altar of false worship in the household of God. Interestingly, in Luke's gospel, this same passage in Luke's gospel, in Luke 21, Luke doesn't tell us about a false altar. He doesn't tell us that this abomination of desolation will be Roman standards or anything, but he says this. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out in the country, uh, let not those who are out in the country enter it. So Luke's advice was, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, then that's the sign 
to flee. Now that advice went totally against what was common practice in those days. In those days when an army attacked and you were living out in the villages, you didn't flee to the mountains, you fled into the walled cities. You fled to a place like Jerusalem because they were fortresses, they were built to resist armies. So Jesus' advice to get out of the city flies directly in the face of what was known at the time. But what's really interesting is that at the time of the sack of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem's destroyed in AD 70, an incredible amount of people died for that time. Josephus says 1.1 million Jews died because they'd all fled in from the country, all left their villages, fleeing from the Roman army. They'd come into Jerusalem and the Roman army attacked at Passover in AD 70. The city was full. 1.1 million Jews died. That's a holocaust, isn't it? But you know what? There were no Christians among the dead. The church survived it. Why? Because they followed Jesus' advice. And they saw the armies surrounding Jerusalem. They took it as being consistent with what he'd said here. And they got out. And they fled to another town. And they survived. Jesus says at this time, there will be days of great tribulation, great suffering. This was true in AD 70. There was a famine. Many of those 1.1 million died through starvation. Others died through pestilence. <clears throat> Others died through infighting. This was the dreadful thing about Jerusalem at the time. They were not innocent people, many of the people in the city at the time. There were factions in the city that were fighting one another. The Jews were killing one another, even before the Romans did anything. The Romans were pleading with the Jews not to harm one another, if you can believe that. It was a dreadful situation. But there was great days of tribulation. And just as it was in AD 70, so it will be at the end time. That's what Revelation promises as well. There will be times of great tribulation. Now, I want to say this again. Suffering... Tribulation, persecution, all these things are explicitly promised to us in Scripture. They're a part of what living in this world means. And I don't find any passage that says that Christians are going to live a life free of suffering. I don't find any verse anywhere that says Christians will be suddenly raptured out of all suffering. That may be your view, but it's not one I find convincing. Because we experience suffering. Jesus promised suffering. And I find that many Christians have their faith rocked and shaken because they've been told that somehow as a Christian that they're not supposed to encounter any suffering, any sickness, any persecution, any opposition. And if they are, it's because they don't have enough faith. I don't find that anywhere in my Bible. I don't know about you. Suffering is something that Christians will endure. And it's something that will come again. But what's really amazing is that God has compassion on the suffering. Again, we see in this passage the compassion of God. Mark 13, 20 says, If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect who he chose, 
He shortened the days. Jesus says that God will cut short the days of tribulation. Why? For the sake of humanity? No. For the sake of his elect. For the sake of his elect people who he chose. God orders, I want you to hear this, God orders the affairs of humanity and the affairs of this world according to his elect people. God has an elect people, brothers and sisters. You may not like it. You may find it a difficult thing to get your head around. Me too. But the Bible consistently tells us God has elected a people for himself, chosen out of the mass of humanity, a people to call his own. And he orders the affairs of the world for their good. You can read it again in Romans 8, chapter, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That verse doesn't say that God works all things together for good for everyone. It says he works things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his person, who are elect according to his purpose. So who are his elect and when has that happened? Election doesn't happen at the moment you choose God. Something that's, that's very often sung and said by people, yes, God elected me when I chose him. Well, that's to get it back to front according to Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, which says even as he, he's the first mover, he chose you in him when before the foundation of the world before ever you did anything not according to what he foresaw in you not according to any good work that you would do why according to his good pleasure that we should be holy and blameless in him in love he predestined us to be adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will and in times of suffering and tribulation that doctrine of God's free grace becomes all the sweeter, all the more wonderful. When we're brought to the end of ourselves, how many of you have ever been brought in life to a place where you say, I've got nothing left? I've used up all my reserves. I've got nothing more to give. In those times when you're brought to the end of yourself, when you've got nothing left to give, you've got no more energy, you've got no more get up and go, you're done. It's that doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty and his perfect sovereign grace. That's what gives us comfort. Charles Spurgeon said, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the pillow I lay my head on at night to go to sleep. It's supposed to be a comfort to us in times of suffering. Salvation is of God. Salvation is of God. It's all of grace it's all of, ultimately, his sovereign love being set upon us. And yes, you still need to believe. Yes, you still need to choose Christ. Yes, you still need to utilize your will to follow Christ in this world. We're not robots. But the root of faith is election. The root of faith is grace. Another thing that Christ warns us of to finish on is that in those days, in that 
time before he comes in judgment. And I believe there is both a first century application of Christ's coming in judgment and an end time application. I believe we need to see both here. But he says that a sign of the end will be that many false Christs and false prophets arise and lead people astray, even, if possible, the elect. Now, even as the Romans were breaking into the city of Jerusalem, there were false prophets. I don't know if you know this. There were false prophets who were prophesying that the Roman army would be turned back, they'd be defeated, the Jews would be saved. There were false prophets prophesying that even as the Romans broke into the city walls. I want you to hear this over and over and over again in your Bible, in the Old Testament. What is the message that false prophets give? False prophets, all the way through the Bible, all they ever do is prophesy good things. They never prophesy anything bad. It's always blessing. It's always favor. There's never any call to repentance. There's never any warning of wrath to come. There's never any mention of sin. A false prophet is all sweetness and light. A true prophet is gritty, says the hard things, reminds us of the judgment of God, reminds us to flee from the wrath to come, reminds us that God is holy. A false prophet will only ever decree and declare good things. That was the case in AD 70 and it's the case now. And it will be the case in the last days. Watch out for the kinds of teachers and pastors and ministries that never talk about sin, never talk about judgment, never talk about wrath, but only ever talk about the blessings. Brothers and sisters, that's what false prophets have done throughout all the eons of history, and it's what they're doing today. If you're following a ministry that never talks about these things, you can be almost certain you're following a false prophet. Another thing Jesus warned of was signs and wonders, but signs and wonders that were false. Now I want to say, if there are false signs and wonders, then there are true signs and wonders. Just as if there are false believers, then there are true believers. I believe in signs and wonders for today. But Jesus said in the last time we'll see these false Christs and false prophets actually doing false signs and wonders that will lead many astray. Now I think in this day and age there is this understanding in many Christians. They'll say, well, he's moving in the signs and wonders. You know, I went to one of his meetings with people getting healed. You know, God was moving. I, I, I got a powerful encounter. And my response will be, that's great. That's wonderful. That could be the sign of a true minister who's being used by the power of God. But what Jesus is saying is that we are to judge the signs and wonders according to the teaching, not judge the teacher according to the science. Does that make sense? We're to judge signs and wonders according to the teaching and not judge the teaching according to the signs and wonders. That means it, just because somebody's moving in signs and wonders, just because somebody's healing, doesn't necessarily mean they're not a false teacher, especially in the last times. A true minister will have signs and wonders. They will see miracles because God is faithful. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean the ministry is true. We judge according to the teaching. We must be discerning in these last times because Jesus says, be on guard. Do you like my little French bulldog? Be on guard. That bulldog is prepared. He's got his knapsack. He's got his lead. He's ready. He's prepared. He's watchful. And in these last times, there will be, and there are, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry to say it, there are many false prophets and false teachers in this time, just as there were in Jesus' time. There are now, maybe more. We're to be on guard. We're to remain watchful, prayerful, discerning. Not to be scared, but to be on guard, like our friend. Part of our watchfulness in these times, Jesus finishes, he says, I have told you all things beforehand. And part of your watchfulness in these times is to remember what Jesus has told you before. Remember his words. Take to heart his words. Meditate on his words. Cherish his words. Memorize his words. Christians in the end time and Christians then need to take sound doctrine very seriously. Remember the words of Christ. Meditate on them. Cherish them. Love them. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, if you don't have a daily reading plan, now's the time to get one. Now's the time to join up. Get the YouVersion Bible app and start a daily reading plan. Whatever it is. But get in the habit of learning the Word of God. Read through whole books if you want. But get familiar with God's Word. Drink it in and meditate on it. It's a great quote to finish with by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks said this, Remember, it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's brief touching of the flower, but her abiding upon the flower that draws out the sweet. Her abiding on the flower, when we abide on the revelation of God, when we really stay in the scripture and we say, Lord, I'm not going to leave this passage until I've drawn out the sweet. I'm not going to move on from this verse, Lord, until you tell me what this means, until I've drawn out every last bit of nectar that you've got to give me in this passage. I'm not moving on. I'm going to draw it out. And that is the type of devotion. That's the type of devotion, that's the type of watchfulness that we need in these times. It's what they needed then, it's what we need now to remain watchful. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and I invite you to stand with me if you're able.